with you here this morning. Uh, that was Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, just a piece of it in an edited music video. Now, please do not read anything into this other than we are at the end of Acts. Paul shakes a snake off of his hand. We're going to follow that theme a little bit. And the title of the sermon, and I don't pick the titles, is called Soakers and Shakers. And so when I heard the title and I read the text, the first thing that popped into my head was Taylor Swift, shake it off. So I had to share that with all of you. I am in, by no means endorsing Taylor Swift as a role model, as somebody whose concert you should go to. I hear those tickets were a little expensive and hard to get. But all of the things, it is literally just a fun, very catchy way to introduce to you the topic that we will be talking about today. We're talking about shaking it off. And as you leave this place, I hope that as the world comes at you in different ways, shapes, and forms, that as believers, we might be able to shake it off. So the next time you feel like not shaking it off, I really do hope that that super catchy shake it off is stuck in your head and you can call me and either thank me or get mad at me for putting that in your brain. Anyway, that, all that to be said, we are at the end of Luke's account of the apostles, Acts of the Apostles. Uh, we are reading through the whole Holy Bible in a year as a church, and um, we are about to head into the New Testament letters. Uh, it's really important that I set up those letters for you just a little bit. Paul writes a decent amount of those letters, and we're going to dive into what Paul was really going through here in the last half of Acts the trials, the suffering, how Paul shakes it off, how he's very unoffendable, how he lives in total freedom, although he's imprisoned, and this hope that he has. It's going to help us as we read those New Testament letters, will help us appreciate them so much more when we put ourselves into what Paul was really going through. And by the way, we're all going through similar stuff. Maybe it looks a little bit different today, but the world that we live in is certainly not an easy place to live. So, as we've been following Paul, he's been on these missionary journeys throughout, uh, throughout the region, going tons and tons of places, planting churches, along with uh, his friends and other apostles. And then Paul makes a journey to Rome. And his journey to Rome is a lot farther uh, than where he's been, okay? So Rome is way up over here, and Paul is arrested way over here in Caesarea. His missionary journeys have been in this area, and you can see that he's going to take a very, very long journey to Rome. It is critical to Paul's calling that he makes this very long journey to Rome. Why Rome? Why is Rome important? Rome is the seat of the world at the time. The Caesar lives in Rome. Rome is strategically positioned right here. It's a major trade city. So you have cultures and philosophies and languages and religions and tons of different people group all meshing together in this place called Rome. And Rome is kind of like the epitome of the Greek, uh, of Greek culture at the time too. And the Greeks love worshiping different gods. Uh, everybody worships Caesar because that's law. 
And so Paul is going to make his way here to spread this hope, this freedom that he knows in Jesus. And it's a long journey and it's a hard journey, but it really matters because this is where Paul is called. I have a couple of pictures from Rome. Tyler and I were able to visit Rome in the fall of 2019. Uh, this is the Pantheon. Pan meaning many or all, Theon, Theo meaning God. This is the Pantheon. It predates Christ. It had been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt by the time Paul got there. But the Pantheon is where one would go to worship their many gods. This certainly was standing when Paul walked into Rome. This is just the culture of the time. Paul enters Rome. People worship many gods. They worship Caesar. Inside the Pantheon are these little apses that at, uh, in Paul's time would have been filled with like Greek god structures. I just think it's hilarious. This is still known as the Pantheon. Do you know what this is today? It's a Catholic church, and it's still called Pantheon, many gods. <laughs> anyway, I think that's more funny than you think it is. That's okay. Oh, dear. Anyway, so Paul ends up in Rome, where this is not a Catholic church. This is still the Pantheon, where they worship many gods. And he's doing it because of his calling. He is so grounded and who God has called him to be and where God has called him to go, that he walks into Rome in chains by choice. If you will with me, we can turn to Acts chapter 26. Paul is explaining, so before he boards this boat to Rome, he is explaining to this court uh, of Roman officials why he's doing what he's doing. So he's talking to Governor uh, Festus and King Agrippa, and he is articulating his call to them. Jesus has called him to do something incredible. So this is what Jesus has called Paul to do, and he explains it to the court. Jesus has said to him, I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Paul knows that he's sent to the Gentiles. He is sent to these people who are very worldly. They don't necessarily want the freedom that comes in Jesus or the hope that comes in Jesus. By worldly standards, they're living a pretty free life. They do whatever they want. But Paul knows this is where he's called to help turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And guess what? They are all going to belong to God. God has set them apart. All people have been set apart by God. When we do baptisms here, you hear us say, baptism means you belong. We have been set apart by God for a specific purpose, and we honor that in baptism. It's part of Paul's call to tell everybody that they have been set apart by God. Paul doesn't do this as a free man. Paul heads to Rome in chains, Paul has kind of been passed along between uh, different Roman courts. Uh, it's the Jewish people who really don't like Paul. He shows up in synagogue and starts preaching, and then mobs form because they disagree with him. So Paul isn't necessarily like the starter of these mobs, but what he's preaching is not well received. So the Jewish people really don't like him, and so they continue to get him arrested. And the Roman governors kind of pass him back and forth for his safety, but also because they don't know what to do with Paul. They're kind of like, we can't really see a reason to like execute him. And if we, hand, if we like release him, all these mobs are going to continue to form. So before Paul heads to Rome, he essentially says to these people, to the Roman governors, he says, I appeal this to Caesar. None of you are doing anything about this. So I'm going to appeal to Caesar. 
And even at one point, King Agrippa says he probably shouldn't have appealed this to Caesar. He could be a free man. But instead, Paul is a Roman citizen. He has appealed to Caesar. So he has electively chosen to take this giant trip to Rome as a Roman prisoner. He's not going there as a free man. He's going as a Roman prisoner. So he is in the guard uh, of Julius, who's a nice Roman officer, is what Luke tells us here in Acts. And they board this, they board this boat. Now, there are three really important things I think we can learn from Paul. When Luke sat down to write the account of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, he wasn't writing this as theology. This wasn't like, here's what you can learn about Jesus. Like, let me teach you things. He was just accounting how the early church started, the Acts of the Apostles, what they were doing. And it is so informative to how we do life as a church, how we walk around in the world around us, we can learn so much from how Paul lived. So there's three pieces that I want to fit together for you today, three pieces of a puzzle, if you will, that will all come together as we get to Rome, uh, as Paul enters Rome. One of those is freedom. Paul walks in freedom all the time. He knows deeply rooted freedom, even though Paul is almost always a prisoner, literally in the sense of the word. He's almost always getting arrested, beaten, thrown in jail, put in chains. And he is the most free person that we read about. He's amazingly free. He knows his freedom because it's deeply rooted. The second thing is shaking it off. I promise I was going to bring it back, right? Paul, because of his freedom, knows how to be unoffended. Paul doesn't get defensive about his faith. Paul doesn't have to, you know, argue with people about it. Paul walks in such freedom that he is unoffendable. He knows how to shake things off. That's the second thing. The third one is hope. These things, freedom, being unoffendable, it points to a greater hope. When our hope is in the world, freedom and being unoffendable are really hard. When our hope is in Jesus, freedom and being unoffendable shaking things off, walking in love and in grace and in forgiveness, it comes because we know hope. There is a source for those things in our life. And that's why Paul ends up in Rome. So number one, freedom. If you will, turn with me to Acts 16. We're just going to let Acts speak for itself because it's pretty powerful. In Acts 16, I'm going to pick up in verse 22. A mob has formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Did you catch that they were severely beaten and then thrown into an inner dungeon and then locked in chains? I've read Acts a few times. I read over this stuff. It's like, I'm just reading the Acts of the Apostles, right? And it seems normal. This isn't really normal. Like, this is hard living for them. Then, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. I don't know about you. If I am severely beaten and thrown into prison, I might be on my knees crying out to God for help, like lamenting. I might be a little mad at God. And Paul and Silas are singing hymns and praying and other, the other prisoners are listening. Paul and Silas are doing ministry in the midst of intense persecution. 
gets even better. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off again. How many of you in your whole Holy Bible, any of your readings, read right over this? Like, that was normal. Massive earthquake, doors flying open, and chains of every prisoner falling off. This is powerful work of God showing up, and we tend to think it's like no big deal. This is a big deal. The jailer wakes up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. I don't know what prisoners wouldn't leave after that happens, but apparently Paul and Silas don't. Paul shouts to the jailer, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. The jailer calls for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved along with everyone in your household. Paul and Silas experience miracle freedom. Prison doors flying open, chains falling off. And they don't leave because their freedom is so powerful that it's going to free the person not in chains. The jailer is the least likely person in this story who needs freedom. And it's the jailer and his entire household who are freed because of Paul and Silas. This is the freedom power that Paul walks in. It is for everyone. I was able to preach on this text at Revive, our young adult ministry in West Des Moines, um, last week. And what I asked those young adults, I asked them what prisons they sit in that other people don't see. The jailer certainly didn't need freedom by worldly standards, but he and his whole household were freed. What are the prisons that we sit in that other people don't see? Here are the examples I gave them. Other people's expectations of me. That is a prison. Other, what other, living up to what other people expect of me is not a freeing way to live. Another one I gave them was control. The more that I grasp at control, the more out of control I actually am. If you like control, perhaps you're tracking with me. It's not actually freeing, is it? To think you're in control and grasp at more control. There are tons of ways that we are in bondage to the world around us, that we are imprisoned by the world around us, the expectations of the world around us. And we have a Savior who frees us from all of it. And your freedom isn't just for you. It affects the people around you. It is so important that we understand Paul's freedom, not in the literal sense, in his deeply rooted Jesus sense. Some of the letters that we will encounter as we continue reading are Paul's prison epistles, his prison letters. He writes them while sitting in chains, and they're really powerful because Paul knows freedom. That's the first piece of our puzzle. Paul's freedom then informs the second piece, shaking things off. When we know this freedom as believers, when we walk in it, we are unoffendable. We are so deeply rooted in who Jesus has called us to be that the world can't shake us. We don't soak in the negativity of the world, the hard stuff. We shake it off 
and we move forward in who God has called us to be. So if you will, Acts 13 is one of the first places where we see Paul shake it off. In Acts 13, uh, Paul is preaching. The Gentiles hear this. They are very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. Then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city, and they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. So they shook the dust from their, from their feet as a sign of rejection and went to the town of Iconium, and the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas shake the dust from their feet and move on. Other translations say they shake the dust from their feet as a warning and move on. I was curious, like, what's actually happening here in the text, so I looked this up in the Greek, and the Greek verb, it means to shake something off, but there's a preposition in front of this Greek verb, and that preposition gives this a little bit of a deeper meaning, something that isn't quite translated. When Paul and Barnabas shake something off in this sense, they're shaking something off for the cleansing of themselves, to shake something off for the cleansing of oneself. They're deciding to not soak in the rejection of the people they were ministering to. They shake it off and they move on to people who are going to accept it. And this doesn't just happen, happen, happen once. It happens over and over again. Jesus in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all quote Jesus as saying to his disciples when he sends them out, if you are not received, Shake the dust off your feet and move on. When we walk in freedom, like Paul did, like Jesus instructs his disciples to do, the offenses of the world don't tear us down. We don't need to respond with defensiveness. We can shake the dust off, cleanse ourselves, and move forward. This happens again in Acts 18. In Acts chapter 18, if I can find it, same thing, Paul is preaching in the synagogue. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go preach to the Gentiles. Do you notice who gives the biggest opposition to Paul? It's the religious people. Do you remember who was most opposed to Jesus' ministry? It was the religious people. I think there's an important message here for us as religious people. I live in the world. I know what the world says about Christ followers. We can be hypocritical. We're not actually free because we adhere to higher standards of Jesus. And we're highly offensive people. Ever heard that one? Ever encountered it in your real life? Unfortunately, there is truth to that. I tend to see us, as a collective whole, the church, get offended often. We're right and other people are wrong. If they want to come at us, oh, I'm going to put my walls up and I'm going to fight back. That's not really biblical. We're called to live so differently. If you haven't noticed we don't fit the mold of the world. We're supposed to be different. We are called to so wholly believe in this freedom that we are unshakable in who we believe we are. And in our callings, 
in where God has called us to go, we too can shake the dust from our feet and move on because we know freedom and we have hope. Easier read and said than actually done. Do you live in this world? That's hard. That's really hard. Just this week, God always tends to throw stuff in my path that I'm preaching on because he thinks it's funny. Just this week, I had an encounter. I was in a very public place with my family, not during my work hours, and I was wearing a Hope t-shirt. And a uh, person approached me and they said, oh, you go to Hope? And that led to, yes, I'm a pastor at Hope and all these things. And can I ask you some questions? And I was like, sure, I love talking about Jesus. I'm very naive in this way. I love talking about Jesus. So this person begins to ask me questions. And very quickly, I realized this was not just a let's chat about Jesus conversation. This was a, I'm going to tell you what's right and what's wrong. And I'm going to try to back you into a corner about it. And it was not fun. And I was like, oh my goodness, what do I do? Ashley, in all of her sinfulness, would have loved to say, stop and let me tell you why you're wrong. Instead, I just started talking less and less and less, and this person continued to talk. And finally, Tyler was like, hey, we got to go. And I was like, see ya. I was like, I got to go. It was really hard. Here's, here's what's even harder. I got home, and I couldn't shake this off. If I'm being totally vulnerable with you, I could not shake this. I kept replaying this conversation over and over in my head, like, what did I say wrong? Do I not actually understand salvation? Like, I was, like, I was questioning, right? These are the lies of the world. And, I, and then I looked at Tyler. Paxton's asleep at this point. I look at Tyler, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm preaching on shake it off this weekend. I should probably shake this off. So I got to work the next day, and I share an office with Emily Beltram. She's our children and student minister. Uh, she's been in ministry a long time, and she is very wise. So I said, Emily, I said, I got to tell you about this thing that happened. So I re- relayed this entire conversation to her, and she was like, Ashley, she said, you realize when people get defensive, when they get offended, when you can't say any of the right things, which is what happened to me, there's nothing I was going to say that was actually correct. She said, you realize there's a deeper fear there, right? There's an insecurity or a fear that there's a reason people put up walls. There's a reason we get offended and defensive. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. I was like, that's so good. So of course, then I turned to my emotion researcher, Brené Brown, to, to understand what defensiveness really is. Brené Brown um, does all this research on emotions. She has a book, Atlas of the Heart, that lists different emotions and what they mean. So here's what she says about defensiveness. At its core, defensiveness is a way to protect our ego and a fragile self-esteem. In our work, she means in her research, the opposite of a fragile self-esteem is grounded confidence. With grounded confidence, we accept our imperfections and they don't diminish our self-worth. What Paul has is grounded confidence. Paul's self-worth has nothing to do with the beatings he's getting, with the trials that he's in, with the chains and the prison that he sits in. Paul's self-worth is grounded in who Jesus has called him to be. And Paul is so free in that. Even against all worldly standards, Paul's not really a free man. Paul has grounded confidence It's what allows us to shake off the offenses. Can you imagine if as a body of believers, the church, were the most unoffendable people in the world? People want to attack you. You're like, come at me. I love Jesus. And at the end of the day, I'm still going to love you. 
and I know what my call is, so we can, we can have arguments and debates, and at the end of it, I'm going to cleanse myself and move on. This is how revivals start. It is so important that we walk in this freedom and in this grounded confidence so that we can shake things off. This kind of shaking will change the world. As we wrap up, I just want to acknowledge the hope that Paul lives in. It's the third piece of our puzzle. And we'll see that hope as Paul takes this journey to Rome. He's going to have hope in the middle of a shipwreck. He'll have hope in the middle of a snake bite. And he will have hope as he arrives in Rome. If you want to go to the next slide, please. Yeah. He's going to take this really long journey. It's hard to have hope on a long journey when you're bound in chains and in the midst of all the trials that the world's going to throw at him until he finally arrives in Rome preaching hope. In Acts chapter 26, before Paul sets sail, King Agrippa says, defend yourself, Paul. Why do you want to go to Caesar? Why are you still in chains? Why are you still part of, you know, why do we still have to guard you? And Paul says, I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. He's on trial because of hope. In fact, that's why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope I have. Yet, your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Paul is accused over and over and over again because of hope. Because he knows something deeper. He even later in this conversation points out to King Agrippa, you know what I'm talking about. I know you know this hope. He kind of puts him in a place where King Agrippa can't really respond right or wrong. But Paul doesn't get defensive. He points people to hope. So they board the ship, and paradoxically enough, all hope gets lost in this voyage. A terrible storm rages for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. This ship was going to wreck there's something that happens in the Greek here. I learned this from Pastor Mike this week. I was on the Mike Drop podcast. Pastor Mike looked up this phrase, all hope was gone. And there's actually some Greek here that doesn't get translated at all. It's all hope was gone of being saved. And the word saved is sozo. It's the Greek word that we talk about for salvation, eternal life, being saved. All hope was gone on this ship of everything, essentially. And Paul says, I believe in God. He's going to take care of us. He showed up and told me none of us are going to die. And they don't. 276 of them on this ship make it to Malta, that teeny tiny island. No one dies. They're all totally fine. This is actually Paul's resurrection, if you will. Paul has been crucified time and time again, beating and trials and beatings and trials and driven out of cities. And here's the point where Paul says, Psh, shipwreck's got nothing on us. We're going to live through this. God's got us. Hope isn't lost. Then Paul gets to this island, Malta, and a snake bites him, a poisonous snake. Surely the islanders know what's going to kill a person and what's not. So they're for sure expecting Paul to drop dead, and he doesn't. What does Paul do? Paul shook off the snake into the fire and is unharmed. This is actually the literal translation of the Greek verb shake off. He isn't cleansing himself from the snake. This is like he actually shook the snake off into the fire. But it totally fits with everything we're talking about. Nothing's going to get Paul down. He knows freedom. He knows how to shake. And he knows hope. And as Paul arrives in Rome, you know what he preaches to the Jewish people in Rome? 
hope. In Acts 28, three days after Paul's arrival, he called together the local Jewish leaders. Paul is still in chains, by the way. I asked you to come here today so we could get acquainted and so I could explain to you that I am bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. How is your hope today? Is it enough to be unoffended by the world? How's your freedom in that? How's your grounded confidence in Jesus? We can do anything that God God has called us to do with this kind of confidence, with this hope. It's why Paul shows up in Rome in chains. As I was thinking about the power of hope, there was a clip that came to mind. Take a look. (laughs) So they let you tote that record player down there, huh? He's in here. In here. That's the beauty of music. They can't get that from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? Well, I played a main harmonica as a younger man. Lost interest in it, though. Didn't make much sense in here. Here's where it makes the most sense. You need it so you don't forget. Forget? Forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's a there's something inside that they can't get to, that they, they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? Hope. Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. Better get used to that idea. I would have argued that hope is a powerful thing. And the more that I've watched that clip, I think I agree that hope is a dangerous thing. Hope is dangerous when we, believers, followers of Jesus, walk into the world with that kind of power. Hope is dangerous to the people who don't want to know freedom, who don't really want to shake things off. Hope might break their chains, and that's a really good thing. We get to live in that hope every single day. When we as people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, our stories begin to look like Jesus' story. Luke, the writer of Acts, has written Acts. He's written Paul so that Paul's story kind of looks like Jesus' story. And as we follow Jesus, our stories will begin to look like Jesus' story. We will face trials and suffering and persecution. We will face people who want to attack us, tear us down, tell us we're not really grounded in confidence. And we have hope. Hope of a savior. Hope of something so much better. We walk in a freedom that the world does not know. And we get to carry this with us and show them what it's like. Hope is a dangerous thing to them. We can change the world with it. Even better, we don't do it alone. 
We walk together as one body united in Christ. This is a core value at Hope. We do this together. Have you ever been in a trial? Have you ever been shipwrecked? It's hard. And especially if you're doing it alone. We do it together as one body united in Christ. We don't offend one another. We don't attack one another. We can have good, hard conversations with one another. And at the end of it, we are still one body united in Christ. We still love our brothers and sisters. As Paul, uh, as Luke ends Acts and Paul's story, it ends abruptly. It's like Paul ends up in Rome and does ministry, period. And it leaves the reader going, what else happens to Paul? What next? Luke did this on purpose. N.T. Wright, the theologian, says this. The journey is ours. The trials and vindications are ours. The sovereign presence of Jesus is ours. The story is ours to pick up and carry on. Luke's writing, like Paul's journey, has reached its end. But in his end is our beginning. We carry on this story. We are the church that carries it forward. Acts of the Apostles is the story of the church. We are the current Acts of the Apostles. We are the church who carries the story on. And when we can do that in freedom, being unoffendable because we are deeply rooted in who Jesus has called us to be, we have a hope that is unlike anything this world knows. So we do that together. We are called to carry on in freedom, to share Jesus, the source of our hope. People will notice. People will notice when you're different. When you're in the midst of a heated conversation and your defenses don't go up and you just shake it off and walk away, people will notice that there's a source to that. We shake the offenses off. We live in grounded confidence because you know who you are in Jesus. My calling is different than your calling. So we're going to live it out differently. But we all do it in grounded confidence in who God has called us to be uniquely. And we do it together in unified community. You don't have to walk the hard path alone. You get to do it with people who love you and support you and are here for you. If you feel a little bit alone, will you please let one of us know? I know it's hard to ask for help, but we're here to serve you. Do you know how much I love every single one of you? Even if I don't know your name, I love you. We are here for you. Please don't do this alone. There's so many ways for us to walk together arm in arm and change the world. Let's pray, and then we'll do some worshiping. Heavenly Father, God, you are far more powerful than we can ever ask or imagine. Lord, you do miracles time and time again. God, I pray that your miracles would reign in this place and in this world, that we would see chains fall and prisons break as they did in Acts. God, you are our hope. Our confidence is in you. Would you open our hearts and our minds to that hope, to really embrace it, to really walk in it, and to share it with the people around us. God, if there are people here who don't know this hope, who want this hope and don't know how to grab it, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you just give it to them? Would you tear down any barrier that separates them from you and let them know that this hope is already theirs? They just receive it. 
God, thank you that we worship you as a community united in love because that's who you've called us to be. God, this time is yours. Will you please use us to change the world? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.